Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. If you are joining us for the first time or you're new here, we are in a sermon series walking our way through Matthew. We, uh, man, I don't even remember when we started. I think this is sermon number 45, 46 or so. My goal is to be done by the fall. I think we'll make it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 27, through chapter 20, verse 16 today. You know, a while ago, I had a friend invite me into what he called a sure thing, sure investment. He had this idea to invest in small banks that were getting started because there was a trend that was going on of larger banks buying up smaller banks, and it was a sure thing. The year was around 2002 or so. And if you remember anything from that time, there was a huge financial crash that was coming. And I remember he said, you know, you put this money in, you're going to get at least double, maybe triple back within a year. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know about that. And so I declined. And I've always wondered to this day just how much money my friend lost. Because a lot of those smaller banks didn't get bought up. They went under. And any money that was invested in that way, I assume, was probably lost. You know, an investment is a choice. It's a choice to take something important And put it somewhere to invest it in something. It's a question of priority. Where are we going to put our highest priority? Now, maybe you're not someone that invests money in many things. I I don't tend to. I don't like keeping track of it. It's not that I'm wise. I'm mostly just lazy. But, you know, there's other ways to invest that we don't understand or that we don't necessarily recognize. We invest our time our energy, our emotions, anything that we put an attention on or we give attention to is an investment of some sort. And I think, I know for me, I am going to question anytime somebody asks me to invest money in something, I'm going to have my doubts. I'm going to be skeptical. I'm going to research it and figure out if it's a good idea or not. But what about our time, our energy? What about our worship? Are we as careful with those things? And today we're going to talk about an investment. A place or a choice to consider something our highest priority, our greatest treasure. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 19 verses 16 to 24. And it's the story of the rich young man that comes to Jesus and he says, I just want to do one good thing. Help me to do that one good thing that will get me into heaven for sure. What one good thing must I do to be saved? And we talked about it last week that Jesus kind of picks apart this guy's way of thinking and eventually leads him to this statement from Jesus. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come and follow me. 
And we talked about this isn't necessarily a universal command. He's not saying, Jesus isn't saying to all of us, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He's dealing with this man and his heart condition. He dealt with other people differently. I'm not going to go into that because we talked about it last week. But the key thing here is this concept of treasure in heaven and linked to following Jesus. This man wanted to make a choice. He had wealth and riches in his life, and he wanted to hold on to them, but he still wanted to be sure that he was going to heaven. And Jesus told him, your treasure cannot be divided into two places. You've got to make a choice. Do you truly trust God? And really, the statement here is, follow me. Jesus is saying, are you truly going to trust me? Or are you going to hold on to your investments in this world, the treasure that you have here? And you know, that's what I want to look at this morning. What does it mean to have treasure in heaven? What does that mean for our life? Jesus' point here is that what we have in him, what we have eventually through his death, burial, and resurrection, what we have knowing that the Son of God is coming back to take us home to be with him forever, the investment, whatever it may be in the kingdom of of heaven, the treasure that we have there far surpasses anything we could possibly hold on to or treasure in this world. So at the end of that account of this rich young man that comes to Jesus, the disciples have a question. And it comes from Peter, as it so often does, because they're looking at what they've done. Many of them have left behind their fishing boats. Matthew has left behind his very lucrative tax collecting business. If you know the tax collectors at that time, they they were forced by the Romans to collect a certain amount, but they would collect more and just keep the extra. And so being a tax collector made someone very wealthy, and people hated them for it. And here they're saying they have left so much. If we look at verse 27 here, this is Peter's statement. Jesus answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? See, the rich young man has just left because he was unwilling to give up his wealth. And the disciples are saying, hmm, we can do the math here. We've left a whole bunch This must mean that we've got great treasure coming our way. Now, it's true. They have left a lot. As I said, some of them left behind their livelihoods, their future, their career. Some of them left behind family. Matthew leaves behind his personal wealth and his tax collecting business. And he's the one writing this gospel. They left behind safety and security. Many of them, just a few years after this account, will lose their life for following Jesus Christ. They left behind a lot. And Jesus doesn't condemn Peter for asking this question. It's an honest question. Jesus, we've given up a lot. What is there for us? We need to accept as followers of Christ today that following Jesus does require us to put our treasure or consider our treasure to be in him and not in earthly things. We are called to live a life of sacrifice. And the disciples understand that they have done this in following Jesus. And if our treasure truly is in Jesus, this must influence our day-to-day decisions about what we will put worth in and what we will treasure It has to. 
If we ignore this in a day-in, day-out basis, how can we say that we truly treasure Jesus above all else? else? Following Jesus is a call to leave certain things behind. To make a choice that Jesus is greater. What's interesting too is that following Jesus is a call to look ahead. Peter is looking far ahead and he's saying, what is there down this road for us? Jesus has promised many great things to his followers. And Jesus has said that following him means that we will have treasures in heaven. Peter is not wrong for looking forward to that. There is an idea among many Christians. We, we shouldn't look for reward from God. And, and I get that because there's this selfishness. And I think this is a little bit in what Peter is saying. I did this. God owes me this. And, and that's not what the Bible teaches. But we can't go too far in that direction because the Bible does say that God longs to, loves to, and promises to give us great things for following him. But notice the phrase that Jesus says to the rich young man, you will have treasure in, what's the word? Heaven. Christians. I know I harp on this a lot, and I will often, because I think it is one of the greatest Bad teachings among Christians and churches today. This idea that God wants you to be wealthy now, have your best life now. Treasure in heaven. Because the truth is, as you read the pages of scripture, especially as you look at the apostle Paul, he says, I consider it all garbage. King James has a better word, dung. Garbage. The stuff of this life, garbage compared to that. Compared to that. So we are forward and future-facing people saying our treasure is there. That's our focus. That's our investment. That's our focus now, and it changes how we live now. Now, here's the problem of Peter's math. You see, Peter is thinking, we are the ones who have followed Jesus from the beginning. We are the ones more so than anybody else that have given up so much. If we have followed him the longest and have given up the most, surely we are going to be rewarded the most. Now, in a way, this is true. In a way, it's true that their reward is going to be great. But his math is flawed. You see, there's, there's an idea in math, and I can't remember the name of the principle, so if anybody knows it, you can tell me. But there's this idea, right? Five plus two equals seven. It's kind of call and response sermon here. Okay, five plus two equals seven. Seven minus five equals two. So if the one is true, five plus two equals seven, the other has to be true. Seven minus five equals two. There's a word for that. I can't remember what it is. But they're really, correlation, I don't know what it is. They're like fact pairs or, or, or number pairs or something like that, right? You get the little triangle cars. I guess not pairs, they're triplets. But anyway, but the point is this. If one is true, the other has to be true. So Peter is looking at this saying, I know what's true is that Jesus has just said following him will lead to great rewards. We have left everything. Therefore, we will get more rewards than anybody else. This is great. And again, as I said, There is an aspect of this that is true, but not in the way that Peter is thinking. God 
is not manipulated by our actions. God is not forced to do certain things because of what we do. In fact, I would go so far as to say what God gives us is so far beyond what we have done for him. And that's why Peter's math is messed up. In verses 28 to 29 that we'll look at in a second, Jesus explains that Peter is in some way right. The reward is great. But then he's going to tell a parable in the first part of chapter 20 that shows how wrong Peter's math is. And he uses this phrase, the last will be first. He says, your way of thinking of it is wrong from the beginning. God looks at things differently. We don't get more from God because we have suffered more. What we can is look at, or what we can do is look at anything we have suffered and anything we have given up and know that what we get from God will far surpass that no matter what. And that's true of everyone who follows Jesus. Now, while Peter is a bit off in his calculations, he's not wrong in thinking there will be reward in following Jesus. Look again at verse 21 says, we will have treasure in heaven. What does he mean by that? What does Jesus mean by having treasure in heaven? Treasure is not just about what we own or what we possess. There is a sense in which when you have a treasure, that treasure possesses you as well. It shapes you. It determines your priorities. It consumes the way we think, and it is important enough to orient our life around that thing. So when we place value on something in our life, that thing puts a demand back on us. I value my car. Now, I'm not a car guy. I don't really care which car I drive as long as it gets from here to there. I'm teaching my son to drive. Ethan, stay off the roads because Ethan's got his learning permit. You know, he's doing a good job. But the other day, he's like, man, I just, I wonder what it, we were driving along, you know, 35, 40 miles an hour. He's driving. He's doing great. He's like, man, I just wonder what it would feel to drive a fast car. I said, it would feel exactly like this because you can't go any faster than that guy in front of you. (laughs) Who cares? But think about it for a second. I value my car because it gets me from here to there. I can get to work. I can run errands for my family. I can take them where they need to go. I need a method of transportation. I have to spend money on gas. Money I would much rather spend on other things. I have to go and get the oil changed and keep the car up. Now, I would not say that my car is this great treasure in my life, but it puts demands on me. I have to take care of it. That's not necessarily bad, but it is something we all need to be aware of. When you treasure something, it puts demands on you. And the more we treasure something, the greater the demand. And so Jesus says our treasure, our highest priority, should be our ultimate future in heaven. Being with God, saved by Jesus Christ forever and ever. The treasure here that he's talking about is eternal life. The Bible lays out that we were created by God to live in his presence forever. That's what you see in the Garden of Eden. We, we like to talk about the fruit and all that, but you can go back before that and say, look at what Adam and Eve had. God would just walk in the garden in the cool of the day and they could meet with him and talk with him. And he gave them everything they needed. They lacked nothing. That's the kind of relationship we were created for. And then sin comes into the world. And what happens? I want that. I need that. 
This perfect relationship between two humans, Adam and Eve, was broken and, and stress and tension enters the world. And all of human history from that moment on is a fight. A fight for who can have the better treasure and the greater treasure. It's a fight to try to make ourselves worth something and to feel secure. It's a fight against the fear that we all fear or feel constantly. And the treasure that we have in God through Jesus Christ is that God sent his son to die on the cross for us, to save us from our sins. And the promise is one day Jesus is coming back. And we can know now that we are pure in his sight, that we have been forgiven by him. We will be with him in his presence, unashamed and unafraid. The treasure is salvation that is not through anything we can do or earn, but is a gift of grace. And the treasure is that one day those saved by Jesus will live sinless lives in a sinless world. I don't think we can really quite conceive of what that means. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Imagine every day for eternity never having to weep over something, never having to feel loss or pain or guilt or shame or fear because you are living in the presence of the God who created you and loved you and, endure, or, and provides for us forever. Now, I can think now about, man, if I could do this or somebody gave me this and I'd be set, but it doesn't work that way now because something always comes along. There's always the other shoe that drops, right? Something happens. Everything's going great and then boom, pandemic. Great. Or maybe it's something smaller. But the promise of having a treasure in heaven is this thing that nothing can take away. Nothing will undermine. Nothing will eat away at it. Nothing. That's a sure thing. Jesus tells his disciples about their treasure in heaven in verse 28. He says, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, that's when he returns, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, I believe, a promise that is very specific to the apostles. I don't want to go too deep into this. I think it's very technical, but Jesus is looking at these 12 men that have followed him, that have given up so much. And he's saying, look, and he knows they're going to face a whole bunch of persecution. They've already faced some already. But he says, look, here's part of your future. And the Bible says the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones and will judge the nation of Israel. Do you know that the word apostle means sent on a mission? It's like a messenger specifically sent on a mission. And Acts kind of tells us a little bit more about that mission. It says that they were sent out to go into Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Well, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, that's really the whole of the land of Israel. So they had to start in Israel to take the message that Jesus is the Messiah and God has brought salvation through this man, Jesus Christ, that the Jewish people put on the cross. And that's who they're sent to. And so often, day in and day out, they are sent on this mission with a message that the Jewish people will not receive. Some did, many didn't. 
And Jesus tells them as they're about to embark on this mission, he says, one day, one day you will sit and you will reign over these people and you will be the ones that will judge them. Now, there is a sense in which we will all rule with Jesus. Second Timothy says, if we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I believe this is specific to the 12 apostles. But let's look at the larger promise here, verses 29 to 30. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But the last, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is a hard passage. This is not saying, don't worry about your wife. Who cares about your husband? Don't, don't worry about your kids. They're, not, they're worthless or meaningless. That's not what Jesus is saying. But let's face it, sometimes in following Christ, our families turn our back on us. Sometimes for standing up for truth, we're denied a relationship with those that we love. And we feel that hurt and that pain and that loss. And what Jesus is saying is not to belittle the loss, but he is to remind us that our treasure that we have that can never be taken away is far greater. And anything that might be lost for the sake of Jesus will always be far less than what is gained through our treasure in heaven. But verse 30 provides this warning and this transition. He says, it's going to be different. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And he's telling Peter, your math is off. My way of looking at things is different. Now again, before I move on from this point, I just want to make it clear. Jesus is not saying, follow Jesus and and anything that you might have lost will be given back to you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as we look at treasure in this world, whether it's our job, our career, our families, our possessions, our money, our future, whatever it is. So we look at all of those things that can be our treasure and we compare it to the surpassing worth of our treasure through Jesus Christ. What we have in Christ is always far greater. Always. This is so essential to faith. And the day in and day out decisions that we make to say, I believe that Christ is more. He is greater. I will trust him and follow him. Jesus is not calling us to turn our backs on our family or our jobs. He is saying, be careful that they are not your greatest treasure. There's a book by a man named A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. I was given this book in high school by a man I didn't even know in my church. Um, I was in my youth group. I was, I think, a junior at that time and was leading some Bible studies, kind of helping out in the youth group. And I got this book in the mail, Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And in it was a note just saying, hey, I was talking to the youth pastor about somebody who could just use some encouragement in their faith. And he talked to me about you. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. This book was so far above like what I typically read and I poured over it and I prayed through it. It's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it, but it is not easy. But there's a chapter in there called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. It's a great chapter name. 
And in it, Tozer talks about Abraham from the Old Testament. If you know the story in Genesis chapter 2, or 22, in fact, we need to back up a little bit. God comes to the man Abraham and he says, look, I will give you a future, but you need to trust me. Leave where you are and go to the promised land, the land I will show you. So he does. And he says, even though you are old and your wife is past childbearing age, I will give you a son. And through that son, I will raise up a people. And through those people, I will bless the entire world. Such a promise. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, gives birth when she's around 100 years old to a boy named Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise the culmination of God's plan for Abraham. And then in Genesis chapter 22, something ground-shaking and surprising happens. God comes to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me there. Kill your son that I gave you. Now, Now, don't storm out right now. Some of you are like, holy cow, that can't be in the Bible. It is, but just hold on. As Paul Harvey would say, let's hear the rest of the story, right? Okay. Abraham has shown a pattern in his life of trying to accomplish God's ways using Abraham's ways. Great God, I can take care of this. I'll do it my way. And God keeps trying to pull him back saying, no, 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 trust me. Abraham, you can't do it. Trust me. And Abraham, no, I got this, God. I think some of us can relate. God puts Abraham in a position where there is nothing that Abraham can do except trust God or completely disobey him. And Abraham makes a choice. He takes his son up on the mountain. And he doesn't know how this is going to work out. And he doesn't necessarily exactly know what God is going to do, but he chooses to trust God. And just before he's about to slay his son, God stops him. And says, don't sacrifice your son. Now I know that you trust me. You see, Abram had to make a choice of treasure. Is he going to treasure how he thinks things should work out? Or is he going to treasure what God says? Tozer writes this. Now he was, Abraham, a man wholly surrendered, a man utterly obedient, a man who possessed nothing. He had concentrated his all in the person of his dear son, and God had taken it away from him. God could have begun out on the margin of Abraham's life and worked inward to the center. He chose rather to cut quickly to the heart and have it over in one sharp act of separation. In dealing thus, he practiced an economy of means and time. It hurt cruelly, but it was effective. I have said that Abraham possessed nothing, yet was not this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy. Sheep, camels, herds, and goods of every sort. And I would add in there his son. He had also his wife and his friends, and best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. This is the spiritual secret. You see, he had those things given to him by God, but they were no longer his highest treasure. He chose to treasure God above those things. I think of it this way. We can either live life with an open hand or a closed hand. See, God gives us things, houses, families, cars, jobs, and they can be good. They can be a blessing from the Lord. But we can take those things and say, mine, I have to hold on to this. This is the only thing that's going to get me through. If I don't do this, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to hold on to it. And God comes along and says, that's not true. 
I have something so much better for you. You need to trust me. And here's what God starts doing. He goes in with his strong hand and he starts prying open the fingers. And he said, God, no, it hurts. I want to hold on to it. And he says, no, let it go. And he pries open the finger one after another. And if he knows that's what's best for us, that's what he will do. Or we can hold life this way. And God still gives us the family and what we need. But instead, we hold it this way and say, Lord, I believe it was all from you in the first place. These things might be mine for a time, as long as you choose. But I'm holding it this way. And if at any time, these things that belong to you, if you want to come and take them out of my hand, they're yours. Same living, same possessions, but a very different mentality. Closed hand, it's mine to own. It's my treasure. Open hand, it's God's. And I trust him with whatever he gives and whatever he takes away. And this is where God moves into this unexpected economy. And he tells this wonderful parable because Peter's question implies an economic understanding of loss and gain. If I give up this much, certainly I will get this much. This would mean that we are in control of how much God gives us. And this is the ultimate lie of the health and wealth gospel. If you do this, God will just bless you with heavenly things right now here on earth. God will give what God chooses to give when God chooses to give it according to God's wisdom and not ours. Period. Sometimes he blesses people with wealth. Sometimes for his glory, he blesses people with poverty so that they can be a demonstration of relying on him. The son of man himself, Jesus Christ, had no place to lay his head. He didn't walk around with a bunch of money. He was fine. We need to trust God for whatever he will give us. The monk Martin Luther struggled with this. He believed as he was taught that the more he suffered, the more acts of repentance he did, the more righteousness he would earn. He tells the story of going to Rome, the heart of the Catholic world. And he thought, maybe there I can do something, much like the rich young man. Maybe there I can do something that will guarantee. And he walked up this flight of steps as an act of penance, but he didn't walk. He did it on his knees. And he got to the top, pain and bloody. In fact, if I remember the story about partway up, he said, this is meaningless. And he was so despondent and discouraged until he understood the truth from God's word. You can't earn it, but God gives it by grace. And now Jesus tells this parable to explain the unexpected economy of God's grace. Look at verse six, or Matthew chapter 20. I just want to walk through this quickly. The story really speaks for itself. Jesus tells him this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. When you come to a parable, try to look for that which is unexpected. When you get to the thing that is shocking and unexpected, that's usually the point of it. Here, this is all very much expected. Man needs people to work. He goes out early in the morning, finds workers, and he agrees to pay them what is a denarius is a day's wages. This is enough for the day. It's what they would have expected. Verses 3 through 5, he says, 
About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Now we're beginning to see some unexpected things. You see, a good landowner would have made plans in advance for how many people he needed to hire. There would be no reason for him to keep going back to the marketplace throughout the day. He would have gotten who he needed in the morning. But this man leaves behind his vineyard, and he keeps going back to the marketplace and finding people standing around, and he says, come work for me. Verses 6 through 7. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Some translations have the word idle, like these guys were standing around, you know, just being idle. They didn't want to work. That's not really what's going on here. The picture is that no one has hired them. It's not them being lazy. Nobody's hired them. They've stood there all day hoping for a job. Five o'clock is, in their kind of way of looking at things, it was about an hour or so before quitting time. This landowner goes out an hour before the workday ends, and he hires these guys, these guys and tells them to work in his vineyard just for one hour. Now look at what happens. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. They worked one hour and were paid for the entire day. Remember I said, watch for what's unexpected. There it is. This is a foolish economic decision on the part of a landowner. One could not stay in business doing business this way. Hiring people to work for one hour and paying them for the whole day. It made no sense. But it goes on. Verses 10 to 12. So when those who were hired first, uh, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, understand, what did he promise them for the day's work? A denarius. What did he pay them? A denarius. And their response is, this is not fair. We should get more than those who only worked the one hour. They're not wrong in that, in the world's way of thinking. But something very different is going on. And their complaint is, we have borne the burden of the work. We had to work harder than them. And they also said, we've had to deal with the heat of the day. We suffered more. Remember Peter's question? What about us that have left so much and have been with you? What will we get? This is the heart of Jesus' point here. The disciples who were the earliest followers and have given up so much will get exactly what every other follower of Jesus Christ gets. Look at verses 13 to 15. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? 
take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with what I, or what I want with my own money? Are you so envious? Because I am generous. So the last will be first and the first will be last. He says, I'm not unfair. I promised you something and that's what you're getting. He says, I want to give everyone the same. He's not rewarding them based on their work. He's rewarding them based on his grace, his choice, his wisdom, his decision. It's not being earned. It's a gift of grace. He also says that he has the right to do with his own money as he pleases. Oh, that we would trust this about our God. God has the right to decide what he gives and what he takes. God gives freely based on his sovereign mercy and grace. He says, doesn't he have the right to be generous? Friends, God has been so generous to us. He gave his son to die in our place and no amount of work would have ever have earned that. And the parable ends where it begins The last will be first and the first will be last. We are not given what we deserve. Praise God, we are not given what we deserve. D.A. Carson says it this way, do you really want nothing but totally effective and instantaneous justice? And he says this, then go to hell. Because that's what you'll get there. If we want what we deserve, and we want others to get what they deserve, there is one place that that happens absolutely and perfectly, and it is hell. You see, our kingdom of heaven, our treasure in heaven, is not of justice. It is of grace and mercy, because God chooses from his generosity to give it it to us. So let me ask you this. Where is your treasure? This world, your life, your home, your car, your family, your job, it's not actually your field. You're not the ultimate landowner. God is. Any treasure that we might have for a time is not truly ours. It all belongs to him anyway. God gives us so much in his grace. And he has given us the great treasure of knowing that in Christ we are saved and we are secure and we will be with him forever. When we realize that our ultimate treasure is through God's ultimate grace, we don't come to God demanding things. We come to God in thanksgiving for what he has given and treasuring the gift of salvation we have through his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tough economics lesson. As we think about our own treasures and what we value and what we put our priority into, God, I pray that you would challenge us. Not that the things we treasure are in and of themselves necessarily wrong, but they are always less than the treasure you have for us. 
And it's not that we just need to go around giving up everything we have in this world, but we need to hold it with an open hand and trust you, the landowner, our God who created us and created this world. We need to trust your ways. And like Jesus said to the rich young man, we need to hear the words, follow Jesus. Trust you. Trust your grace and your mercy. May we set our sights on the ultimate treasure that we have through Jesus Christ. May everything else in our lives find its value as we compare it to what we have in Christ. And may we understand that the gift of the treasure of salvation and our future in heaven is all of grace. That landowner wanted those people to be able to live and he paid them what they needed, not what they deserved. And God, you give us so much more through your son, Jesus Christ. So may we set our sights on the treasure that is ours through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.